last week, the outline of the sermon was there's two plots, right? We looked at two plots last week, and uh, the first plot, of course, was this assassination attempt on Paul. They were plotting these 40 Jews scheming to basically bind themselves in an oath to neither eat nor drink until Paul was killed. They were going to ambush him. And we saw last week that this plot, this evil plot, was exposed and then it was thwarted. And then we looked at a second plot, a, a good plot. We talked about how God's providence, his plan, his plot, is underneath absolutely everything. And ultimately, his purposes cannot be thwarted. And so we found a ton of hope in that reality of God's providence, trusting in it, seeing that the most evil thing that was ever done was the crucifixion, the scheming and that led up to and then the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it was something that God could have thwarted, but he didn't for a time. And we're exceedingly glad. We're here today because he didn't thwart that evil plot. We're here because he had a plot that was deeper and more profound and more long-term and lasting than the evil plots of this world. We found a lot of encouragement in the fact that at the end of the day, whatever evil plots come in this world, evil will not have the final word. So two plots, one evil, one good. Today, I think the message really dovetails with what was said last week. And so instead of looking at two plots, we're going to look at two trials. Okay, two trials, a past trial and how we can learn from it and a future trial and how we can prepare for it. Okay? So two trials, a past trial and a future trial. And this is an important word for all of us to hear. And so let's let's pray again for God's help as we turn to his word. Father, I thank you for the help you've given me in preparing this word as you do every time. And as you do for the other preachers as well. And Lord, I thank you for how you have supplied the needs of your people. And I pray that you continue to do that powerfully, even through the provision of this word. I pray that it would be timely. I pray that it would have an awakening effect. Lord Jesus, you tell us, stay awake. Stay awake. And Lord, I pray if any of us are slumbering spiritually, that you would use this to wake us up that we would be faithful in sounding the alarm in this world. Just by your spirit through this time, would you own the preaching of this word and apply it powerfully in a way that penetrates deeply into the hearts of each person here in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look first at the past trial, and then we'll turn to think about how we can learn for it. So the context is there at the first part of 24, the first few verses, it says, and after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, Tertullus, one Tertullus, they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when they had summoned Tertullus, began to accuse him saying, okay, so we have Tertullus, this uh, kind of smooth talking lawyer that seems to have been hired by the chief priests, uh, the high priests and the elders, these powerful religious leaders. And uh, so this lawyer, they got to defend them, probably one who's very educated, very acquainted with Roman law and can stand hopefully persuasively from their perspective. 
and represent them well before Governor Felix. And uh, so they're going to get the chance to give their case. And so when I say trials, two trials, we're not talking about trials and tribulations, the difficulties we passed in this life. We're talking about court cases. Okay. So like in any court case, you have charges that are given, right? Accusations that are made. Then you have a defense in response. And then you have a decision that needs to be uh, set down by the judge, right? So we're going to see all those at work here. And so now Tertullus, on behalf of the Jewish authorities there, gets to lay out his case. So he's going to do that in verses um, 1 through 9, especially uh, verses 2 through 9 there. And so he's going to lay out three main charges. And I'm going to do my best not to reread this entire chapter but it's going to mean you're going to have to be a really attentive listener, okay? But I'm going to try to summarize it succinctly, okay? So three charges. Number one, he stirs up riots, okay? In other words, he disturbs the peace. This is probably one of the most weighty charges that, that they're bringing against Paul. Because in that day, culturally, there was kind of one thing that was most important for the Romans, right? The Pax Romana, Roman peace. And so if you were a governor put over a certain jurisdiction, like, look, man, you have one job and you better do it or it's not going to go well for you. Like, at very least, you're going to be deposted. At worst, right? So they knew they had to keep the peace. And so for Tertullius to come, he knew that it would at least feel persuasive for him to say, this man stirs up riots. That's his way of saying, the peace is being disturbed. You don't want the peace to be disturbed, do you, Mr. Governor? You can see the angle that he has there. Here's the second charge that he gives. So not just that he stirs up riots, he leads a sect. You see that there in verse 5? For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So the sense that he's giving here is that He's a leader of a movement, a dangerous movement. He calls it a sect, probably here in a derogatory way, saying, like, this is such a fringe thing. This is an unorthodox movement, and he's the leader of it. This is, he's dangerous. They're dangerous, right? And, um, and this is a danger not just to us as a Jewish people, but to all of Rome. And this is happening throughout the world, you know, not just your jurisdiction, but beyond it. You just see the sense he has here. So he stirs up riots. He leads a sect. Here's the third charge. He taints the temple. Right? He says, he even tried, verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple. But we see them. Okay? So, now he puts that last probably because to the Roman governor, that's probably the least persuasive out of all of them because, you know, it's kind of the least of his worries. But there is a sense where it carries a little bit of weight because... These Jewish leaders, as you can kind of see it through the book of Acts, and you can even see it in the gospel, especially with Jesus's uh, trial, like these Jewish leaders, wicked in so many ways, they have a lot of political capital. Have you noticed that? The, the governing authorities there, like even Governor Felix, Felix here, they can't just ignore these, the feelings of these powerful Jewish leaders these leaders in the Sanhedrin, this kind of Jewish Supreme Court, because they, as we even saw in the case of Jesus, they can stir up a mob, can't they? They can create all kinds of problems 
And his one job as a governor is to do what? Keep the peace, right? And so, in a sense, he's putting this one last because it might be the, la the least uh, persuasive out of the three. But in some ways, it still has an effect because he's saying, hey, governor, what affects us? Wink, wink, affects you. Okay? And so, this is, yeah, this is the case that is laid out. And the sense of it gets captured pretty well when he says, this man is a plague. Right? He's a pest to our entire nation. He's a, he's a pest that needs to be smushed. He's a cancer that needs to be cut out. This man is terrible, not just for us as a Jewish community, but for everybody in and beyond your jurisdiction, Governor Felix. That's, that's the sense. Now, there's some textual things I could get into, but since I'm preaching a whole chapter, I'm not going to have much time to get into a, a lot of uh, some of the textual challenges with verses 6 through 8. But let me read it for us. It says, He has even tried to profane it, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And so what's happening there? I say a textual issue because if you have like a King James Version, for example, or maybe a New King James, you'll see some footnotes. Even in the ESV footnote, you can see some manuscripts add a phrase, and we have judged him according to our law. And so basically you have different manuscripts, and they're trying to weigh out what manuscripts would probably be most likely to re reflect the original manuscripts. And so bear with a very technical point for just one second. So it basically comes down to are they saying, uh, are, they, are they basically wanting to say that they're, they're asking uh, Felix to examine Lysias, the, the governor or the, the tribune that, that came and was part of trying Paul, having him examined and saying, see, examine him and he's going to, and you'll see that this accords with everything that we just told you. Or is it saying, okay, now examine Paul, right? And once you examine him, you're going to see exactly what I have, like, yeah, go ahead, examine him. Asking questions, one one brother put it this way, like, give him enough rope and he'll hang himself, kind of kind of thing. And so it's one of those two options. Um, but I can say this, um, it's really secondary to the overall message of the text. And the reality is this, whoever they're appealing to, whether it's saying, hey, ask Lysias and, and, and you'll, you'll see what we're talking about, or, or hey, examine Paul and you're going to see exactly what we're talking about. Regardless, here's the issue. This appeal, either way, is really a smokescreen to the fact that they have a really flimsy case that they're putting out before Paul. Okay? Uh, that they're putting out against Paul. And so it's kind of a smokescreen, them making it seem like it carries a whole lot of weight. But in fact, these are really pitiful charges that are really unsubstantiated. And uh, so, makes me think of the proverb that says, the one who states his case first seems right until another come and examines him, right? So now we move to the defense, right? So those are the charges. He stirs up riots. He leads a sect. He taints the temple. He's a plague, right? Now Paul gets to make his defense, all right? And so I'm going to walk through how Paul responds to each one of these charges, kind of in summary form, but here's the... Here's the transition here, verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him, to Paul to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been judge over this nation, 
I cheerfully make my defense. Really quick note here. There's such a difference between the way Paul addresses the governor and the way Tertullus addresses the governor, right? Tertullus, did you listen to what he said that Jesse read a few moments ago? Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and in everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you, by your kindness, Ah! Every Jew in Palestine is going, ah! Is this guy sick to his head or something? I mean, I mean, if you would read any Jewish sources about the kind of governor this was, like, none of these things are true <laughs> about him. But, but what does he want to hear? Right? So he just lavishes on the flattery, right? Just, just flatters him to no end. How does that contrast with Paul? Knowing that for many years you have been judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Later on, he's going to say that he's very acquainted with the way, that is, the way of salvation, that is, the Christian faith and the movement of Christians. He's been there for a while, so he's acquainted, and he knows enough to know that the Christians are not a danger, right? So Paul actually thinks that's going to work out in his favor. So what does Paul do? He just with gratitude and humble recognition says that, yep, you are sovereignly governor over this land, right? And I'm thankful for that, right? Because you know about a lot of the things that are going to be talked about today. And this is Paul's way of saying, and I think it's going to go well for me because of that. In other words, truth is on my side. But he doesn't spend all that time flattery, but he does show respect and even gratitude as far as he can. I think I love that measure of defense, something to learn there about flattery and avoiding it. So, Paul's defense. Okay, so the first charge, he stirs up riots. Okay, Paul's response to that, I did no such thing anywhere in any place. I didn't stir up any riot. In fact, I didn't even argue with a single individual. Like, you wouldn't even have found me, like, bantering with one person, let alone, you know, stirring up riots anywhere. So, he says, and they did not find me disputing with anyone, so even an individual person, or stirring up a crowd, this is verse 12, halfway through, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. So anywhere, right? And then it says this, neither can they approve. So his assumption is that's so baseless, right? First charge falls flat. There's no proof that I was stirring up a riot anywhere and in any place, okay? And now for the second charge, okay, that I'm the leader of a sect, he says this. This, but this, verse 14, I confess to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men, pointing to the religious leaders, themselves accept that, they will, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and and the unjust. So I take pains to have a clear conscience before toward both God and man. And so what's his response to the second charge of being a leader of a sect? This is something he concedes a little bit, right? He's going to say, well, they call it a sect. Um, no, we refer to it as the way, right? The way of salvation. But his point here is like, yes, I'm part of this movement. And yes, I'm one of the leaders of it. But there is nothing fringe about this movement. This is his way of saying, Governor, you know all about this movement, right? This is not some fringe movement. In fact, 
Paul's basically saying, I'm a good Jew. <laughs> like, I'm a true Jew in the sense that I believe everything written in the law, I believe everything preached about in the prophets, and I embrace wholeheartedly the promises that were given in the law and the prophets as they culminate in the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that comes to full flower with the resurrection of the just and the unjust. And he says, even my accusers believe that there's going to be a general resurrection. So he's appealing to that. And you remember last time he was tried in their courtroom before the Sanhedrin? You remember what he did? I think Jake preached his sermon. He, it was really shrewd, right? He's on trial and he sees a weak spot with this Sanhedrin, this blend of, you know, Sadducees and Pharisees. And he knows that the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, but the Pharisees do. And so he goes, it is with respect to the resurrection that I'm on trial today. And it just started this intramural squabble between Pharisees and Sadducees, right? And so he's appealing to that again here uh, in this text because he actually says it uh, later on. And so his defense basically is that I am faithful to what our forefathers believe. I am not deviating from the ancient paths. In fact, I'm following them to their logical conclusions. This has Paul's been Paul's consistent defense throughout Acts. He's saying, this is where all of this was headed, and I am joyfully embracing this whole. And many, which you call a sect, I say the way, are on the way of salvation, enjoying the fruits of promises fulfilled. And I'm grieved that my people are rejecting the fulfillment of those promises that were made by the law, in the law, and in the prophets. You see? That's Paul's defense here. And so I'm not just some crazy leader of some cult, right? I'm one leader of a well-known movement that has grown out of ancient promises that are now fulfilled and we're quite thrilled about it. Let me respond, Paul would say, to the third and final charge. Right? Right? That I taint the temple. Right? Okay, I really like his response to this. Okay, so he says this. Now, verse 17, Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make their accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men, right, the Jewish leaders that he already stood before in their courtroom, let they themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before their council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial this day. So Paul's response to that third accusation about tainting the temple is basically to say, I was in the temple, and when they found me, I was purified. So you can go back to chapter 21 that gives a whole backstory to this. But you will probably recall that Paul came into Jerusalem. He met with the Jerusalem elders and they gave him some really wise counsel saying, okay, like this is a powder keg here in Jerusalem right now. There's a lot of sensitivities to a lot of things. You would do well to bend over backwards to not cause any unnecessary offense, right? So Paul did. He bent over backwards. He went way out of his way, even at his own expense, to provide these offerings for these guys that were going to be uh, concluding a vow that they were making. 
And so he ended up going into the temple, but he went through all the purification process, went through all these, jumped through all these hoops in order to not cause any offense, right? That's how they found him, purified in the temple. He's like, my conscience is clear. I bent over backwards for these guys, right? And so it was the Jews from Asia. They happened to have a little track record with Paul because Paul was preaching the gospel throughout the known world, right? And so now they're in Jerusalem and they see Paul and they immediately start accusing him. And that's when the riot broke out. And so Paul's saying, oh yeah, there's one more thing. That Paul was seen with Trophimus, who was an Ephesian, a Gentile, but it was way outside of the temple, right? So they had the assumption that they brought him into the, that he brought him into the temple. So it's based on this assumption, and Paul's going to say, unproven assumption, that he defiled the temple by bringing a Gentile into it. All of these are bogus claims, and Paul is showing it very clear. And the Roman governor would take seriously the fact that the main ones who could actually be witnesses right now aren't in the courtroom. Like if they felt so strong about it, they should be right there right now, being the first ones to make their case. And so, you found me purified, worshiping God. I came here in the first place to bring offerings to my nation. That is that big offering to care for the Jewish believers, right, in Christ. And uh, so it's just an act of love that while he, why he's even there. And so he's been arrested on an assumption. Where are the witnesses at? Where is the proof? Okay. One person states his case first. Right? Seems like it's persuasive. And then another comes and examines him. By the time Paul's done with his defense, I think he shot so many holes through those accusations that it doesn't carry much water. And so they say Paul's a play. The sense of Paul's defense is basically this. There's no proof for any of the accusations that are made. I have a clear conscience toward God and man. I bent over backward not to cause any problems. Obviously, there's a problem, and he's saying the main thing, the main thing I'm on trial for is the same reason I was on trial before the Sanhedrin, and that is my belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is what separates me, not what was written in the law, not what was preached about in the prophets. It's its culmination in promises fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who's resurrected from the dead. They don't like that. I happen to really like that. And that's the dividing line that is made right there. That's Paul's case. But that boiling down to an issue of the resurrection, and in their case, kind of a, a religious question, is going to make the governor, in one sense, even make, want to throw this case out even more, right? So now it's time for a decision, right? Charges are given. A defense is made. There should be a decision. As they should be, we're going to see that there isn't. Verse 22. But Felix, having, <clears throat> having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, that is Christianity, the way of salvation through Jesus Christ, he put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Pause there. Is that a true statement? No. This is foolish. Oh, when Lysias comes down, then I'll decide the case. Okay. You're not waiting for your inferior to come so that you can decide this case. You're punting, right? You have no political backbone, and we're going to see, see this again. It says, Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should keep, be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Now I want to jump, uh, keep going there. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, 
who was Jewish and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him and often conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Okay, so if you're the judge in this case, and you just got to hear it out, of course it was a little hard for me to present in an unbiased way, uh, but it's an easy case, right? It's an easy case. It's not hard to see that they don't have substantial proof of the charges that they're made. Paul shot plenty of holes in it when he made his defense. And to top it all off, Felix is well positioned to make a good judgment on this, to be able to just go, look, these Christians, there are a lot of things, but they're not dangerous. Okay? He's well acquainted. He has a knowledge of the way, an accurate knowledge of the way. So all the things are in his favor to be able to make a clear, decisive, just decision. But... His decision was a non-decision, right? His decision was delayed indefinitely. He could have made it, but he didn't, right? For two years, he kept Paul in prison. Think about that on an emotional level. He's completely innocent. He's left in prison for two years, right? Why? Why was he left in prison for two years? Well, the text tells us it's basically for two types of gain, gain in terms of financial and political capital. He wants to gain financial and political capital. Financial, bribes. They weren't supposed to take bribes, but everybody did it in their own empire. A lot of corruption, right? And so he wanted to keep calling for Paul so he could get some money. I mean, he did hear that Paul brought some pretty big offerings to, to Jerusalem, and so he might be able to tap into some of those revenue streams to make a little bit more money on top of his governor's salary. Sounds like a politician, doesn't it? <laughs> Okay, right? So he wants to get a bribe, so get some financial capital going, but he also wants to get political capital, right? So he knows that he can't just condemn him because this case is he's obviously innocent, right? But what happens if he just releases him and does the just thing? How are the Jews going to feel about that? How much power do they have? How much backbone does Felix have? None. <laughs> yeah, exactly. None. And so what, what he does, he just, he punts. I'll just keep knocking this thing down the road, right? I might get some money out of the deal and I will satisfy the Jews so they don't cause me problems when I'm trying to keep the peace. Right? That's basically his approach. And he was willing to do that for Paul unjustly for two years. It was almost certain that Paul would be found not guilty, but he took the easy way out. Felix took the easy way out. He perverted justice. He added to his sin. He continued to spend his life looking for the quick fix and the easy way out. He chose to save face before man instead of do what's right in the eyes of God. Many people live that way. It's not just Felix. Many people will just keep kicking the ball or kicking the can down the road, right? So to speak. Keep doing that over and over again. But as we wrap up this past trial, we want to ask ourselves a question, how can we learn from this? 
right? So there's some applications here. They're secondary. We're going to wait on the primary one. But they're also worth uh, noting. And so I'm going to note them kind of briefly. But how can we learn from this past trial? Well, one, we can learn to show respect without flattery. This is important. That's a, this is a little gem to learn there. Draw the difference and the distinction between Tertullus and how he addressed the governor and Paul and how he addressed the governor. It's good for us just to have this brief reminder that flattery is sin. It's actually not truth telling, right? When we flatter someone, that's a way of manipulating someone to get them to do and say what you want them to do and say, right? And so for saying something about someone, even if it's really nice but not true, that's flattery. It's not pleasing to God. It's actually equivalent of a lie before the eyes of God. Tertullus had no problem doing that. But the Christian's conscience should strike them a little bit and say, okay, no, that's not for me. So we want to show respect. We want to show gratitude as far as we can. That's a great instinct. But we want to be measured in our responses. Not flatter people, but be truth tellers. Here's a second kind of secondary application. We want to be a people who fight for integrity so that we can rest easy. Okay? We want to be a people who fight for integrity so that we can rest easy. Notice what Paul says, verse 16. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man. Take pains. It's not easy to live with integrity in a fallen world when there's compromises and corruption everywhere you turn. But Paul's saying, I take pains to live that way before God and before man, vertically and horizontally. And so if there's anything that is compromising our integrity before God, tainting our consciences before God, we need to confess that. We need to bring that to the Lord. We need to fight daily to live with integrity. And it's such a gift to live with integrity, isn't it? Because when you do, you don't have to fear things or people. It's a wonderful way to live. I know I've used this illustration before, but it just came back to my mind because I had this moment in town the other day. As I'm driving through town and the cop, you know how they set themselves up. The cops, they pull over to the edge and they're they're waiting. It's kind of a trap, you know, and there's that moment where you're like looking down at your speedometer, like, where am I at right now? And I want to be totally transparent. I've been on both sides of this thing, you know? So there's times where it's like, ooh, I was getting a little too carried away there. And you're just looking in the room, please no, please no. Thank you, Lord, you know? Um, but there's, there's other times where you're just more controlled. You're more focused. You're taking pains to make sure where you're at speed-wise. And I'm more inclined to wave at the officer. When I do that, you know, and that's the thing is we're, we're not afraid of authority when we're doing good, right? And God has made us that way. He made us to live with a clear conscience. He wants all of his children to enjoy the blessing and the power of a good conscience. Because when we do, we're not afraid of the courtroom of man. Because we have nothing to be ashamed of at all. It's a powerful way to live and God wants us to fight for it. Or as Paul says, take pains to live that way. Here's a, here's a third thing that we can learn from this past trial. To trust God's providence when things don't happen the way they should. We live in a fallen, upside-down world. Things often don't happen the way that they should, right? Like, for example, you're trying to do something good, and you just feel like it backfires and blows up in your face. Like, I was doing something. And was that all for naught? I mean, think about Paul, right? He was literally bringing alms in Jerusalem, right? 
He was, he was bringing offerings to his people. He was doing the sacrificial act of love that took to prepare, right? He's doing that. He's coming sacrificially because he wants his whole nation to put their hope in Jesus Christ as the culmination of all the promises written about in the law and fulfilled in the prophets, right? Or preached about in the prophets. He, he's there for them, right? He's doing all these good things. He took pains not to give any unnecessary offense. And then he went into the temple and boom. <laughs> and you can see one of us in that situation going, oh, forget it then. You know, like I did all this for nothing. Wasn't Paul's attitude because he didn't do it for nothing. He did it for an audience of one. And that's the thing, right? You can say, well, why was all, all that good for nothing? Well, not if it was done unto the Lord. Because as Christians, that's what we want to do. We don't do what is right just because other people like it at a time. We do what is right because it's pleasing to God. And then we let the chips fall. And people are going to do what they want with it. We just want to do what pleases the Lord. But in an upside-down world, things can backfire. doesn't mean we shouldn't do them. It just means sometimes it doesn't go the way that it really should go, you could say. And so we trust God's providence when it doesn't. Go the way it should. Or when justice is delayed. In a fallen world, we, you know, we long for there to be just actions. Felix didn't deliver on justice. And for some of us in our lives, maybe there's some injustice that hasn't been righted. Okay? And sometimes justice is delayed in a fallen world. Like in Paul's case, for two years! Right? He's sitting there totally unjustly. You know, still in prison. And for Paul, he could say, you know, I bet for Paul he'd say his time was precious to him. I know I'd say that about myself. I think you would say that about your own life. Time is precious, right? We know that we can't get it back. There's a sense in which Paul was robbed of two years where he should have been freed to go do what he was called to do. But instead, he was locked up for two years even if he did have some minor flexibility within that, right? And I think for some of us, we've experienced things, whether it's childhood abuse or something else that has happened to us, and we go, I've been robbed of these years. And there's a sense of injustice there, and it's a right sense of injustice. Or even some of us, I think, could say, like, I wasn't necessarily robbed of that time. I squandered it. I, I wasted that if I'm honest, before the Lord. And I feel guilty, you know, about that. And I think the point here is that even then, even if that were the case, God loves to work redemptively. God loves to take the years, to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. God loves to recycle things that we kind of botch and mess up. This is what God does. And God loves to use even things in a fallen world in a way that's going to magnify his glory. And so the question then is, what do we do with it? How do we respond when justice is delayed, when good done backfires on us, or when precious time is taken from us or squandered by us? What do we do? How do we respond? And this is that tie to last week's sermon. We remember that there's a deeper plot. We trust God's good providence in all things, whether it's a sweet providence or a bitter providence, right? And so, really, I think the heart is we want to wake up each day 
even in years where we feel like time's being taken from us, and we say, Lord, what do you have for me today? That's the sense I get here when it comes to Paul, right? He's in prison for two years. You don't see him spending two years with a victim mentality. Paralyzed because of the past and just saying, look at all these things that happened to me. This is so unjust that I'm here. It's like, yes, Paul knows that. He knows he lives in an upside-down world. His question is, Lord, what do you have for me today? Lord, how can I respond to your providence in a way that's going to redeem this time? And you recognize that there's a deeper plot. What do you think Paul was doing for those two years? I think you got a pretty good sense if you've been reading the book of Acts. What was Paul doing for these two years? He was preparing others as often as possible for a future trial. You see, the one that he was just in, as pressure-packed as that was, was so small to him. It's almost nothing to be in the courtroom of man, especially when you have a clear conscience, right? His concern for everybody, and especially for those in that courtroom, is that they're prepared for a future trial, okay? And that leads us to our second point. He's wanting them to see and be aware of a future trial and how they can be prepared for it and how we can be prepared for it. And so I asked that question, what was Paul doing for two years? Well, the text, in some ways, doesn't leave us guessing, right? Do you remember that Felix and his wife, Priscilla, called for him often? Sure, their motives weren't completely pure. They wanted some money, and they kept him in there for political gain. But the reality is they also wanted to converse with him. They were intrigued, right? So they summoned him often. And so Paul took those opportunities to talk with them about Christ, and so Paul was spending his two years there, and I doubt he was just waiting to be summoned. I'm sure he was talking to anybody that would lend their ear, right, if we know Paul. And so he was engaged in these conversations with Felix and Drusilla. Now, just to get a little, this little bit of historical backdrop may be helpful in this moment. So Felix and Drusilla. We hear those names. They don't mean much to us, okay? But if you lived in Palestine at the time, and they had magazines, you know, like they have at the at the stores, like the gossip magazines. I hope you don't read them. But like, you know, you see, like, if you were to see those, you know whose name would be on most of those? Yeah, Felix and Drusilla. Why? Well, this is Felix's third marriage. This is Drusilla's second marriage. The stuff sells, right? Okay. And uh, some of the background of it, even Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote about this. And so he talked about how Priscilla, his word, like she was stunningly beautiful. Felix noticed that. It didn't matter that she was married. And she happened to be unhappy in her marriage. So Felix, even though she's 16 years old, in a covenant, he persuades her to leave her husband and to marry him. So she becomes his third wife. Okay, now this is her second marriage. And... Um, so this is kind of their lifestyle background, okay? Not all that pleasant. Something that would have been well known in most households in Palestine. And so that becomes relevant when you say, huh, if Paul's going to get opportunities to converse with her, what's he going to talk about? What might some of the topics of conversation be? The weather? Sports? The Olympics? 
know, Paul had specific topics that he felt he would talk about, not just once, but as often as he had opportunity. Do you see him there in verse 25? I'll back up a little bit in verse 24 when it says that he talked to them. They sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus, verse 25. And as he reasoned about, here's one, righteousness, two, and self-control, three, and the coming judgment. Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Righteousness. We're talking about God's righteous standards. So he's talking to them about what God thinks about everything in the world. Right? Things that ought to be done for his glory, things ought not to be done. Okay? Righteousness. Self-control. Ouch. Talking about that need for godly and virtuous restraint. And just because you desire something and you crave something doesn't mean you should act on it. Right? But to actually show restraint. How are they feeling so far? Okay, let's keep going. Righteousness. Self-control. Judgment. Even in Paul's trial, he talked about the resurrection of the just and the unjust, right? Paul is now talking to them about a future courtroom. A future trial. I mean, he just sat in a court and is now being unjustly treated by the one he's talking to in these conversations. And he's still there because he's refusing to administer true justice, right? And Paul's heart is not vindictive. He doesn't have a chip on his shoulder. His heart is that Priscilla and Felix, with all their past and all their baggage, that they would be prepared to stand trial. That they would prepare, be prepared for a future courtroom. That they would know what that is going to Entail. He wants them to be prepared for it. Because Paul knows, as he says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. All are going to appear there. All of our deeds are going to be exposed there. He wants them to be prepared for that. He really believes that that is going to happen. And so, he wants them to know what to expect about this future trial. So let's fix this in our mind. There's a future trial on the last day, on Judgment Day, okay? Here's some of the things that every single person can expect. We can expect charges to be brought on the basis of righteous expectations. They're not going to be whimsical expectations. They're going to be the things that God has said, that God has communicated in the world, in his word the Bible. That's going to be the basis for his expectations and what's going to be the standard that judges what is good and evil, what's right and what's wrong. Okay? So, charges are going to be brought on the basis of what has been written. Second, they can expect, and we can expect, full evidence. Right? Full evidence to be brought in. God's all-knowing, so there's going to be no shortage of what he's able to bring in, you know, to bring the full picture of a certain situation or the state of a heart. And he's going to bring that evidence, and that evidence is going to be perfectly, infallibly evaluated. Like, we're not asking, like, for a bunch of lawyers to scratch our heads and comb through all these. Like, God is all-knowing. He's perfectly wise. He's going to be able to evaluate the evidence perfectly. And it's all going to be brought in, and all excuses are going to be dismissed. Another thing to expect would be that this judgment, the judgment that's going to be rendered, the decision that's going to be made, 
is going to be done accurately and promptly, unlike Felix's show. Right? Maybe one more thing I can say is this. And think about Paul speaking to Felix and Drusilla, given their where they've come from, right? He says, oh yeah, and this is what you need to expect. Expect Jesus to be your judge. God's, and he said this earlier in Acts, the resurrection of Jesus is proof that Jesus is going to be the one at the bench on that day. He's the one that's going to be presiding over that trial on that day. And so what I'm talking about, I'm not being flippant about it, Paul's saying, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Christ is going to be the one to render that verdict on the basis of really solid evidence, righteously evaluated. All of it. That's what every person can expect. How did Felix and Drusilla feel in those conversations? Paul didn't take the route of talking about the weather. He didn't even know what the weather was like. Right? He wanted to talk to them about what was going to prepare them. He wanted to talk to them about righteousness, what God expects of people. He wanted to talk to them about self-control, the very thing they don't have. Right? He wanted to talk to them about judgment and the expectations that surround that so that they're ready for that day. And so when he did... They were nervous. I think it puts it too mildly when I say they're uncomfortable. I think the word used in the text is probably the best word that could be used to describe how they felt. Did you notice the word? Say it if you can guess it. Want to be confident? Yes, they were alarmed, right? Go away for the present. End of verse 25. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. In other words, have you ever had that kind of conversation that just ends abruptly? Whew. They were nervous. They were uncomfortable. They were alarmed. And I just want to say this. They should be. They should be. This is alarming to be in that state and to have that final trial hanging over your head. There is something to be alarmed about. But here we go. Felix, his dreams of fulfilling his craving for power, for satisfying his lust, for building on his greed, caused him to quickly drift back asleep. He calls for Paul. Calls Paul says something that's alarming to him. Go away! Okay. He's going to go back to sleep and continue pursuing the things that he wants to pursue. Listen to Matthew Henry, this great famous commentator, said this, quote, Many are startled by the word of God who are not changed by it. Many fear the consequences of sin, yet continue to love and practice the practice of sin. In the affairs of our souls, delays are dangerous. Felix put off this matter to a more convenient season. But we do not find that the more convenient season ever came. That last line is kind of haunting. Right? So basically what Felix is doing, he's calling Paul, and Paul is going out on a limb. I mean, this is costly for Paul. If this goes wrong, this could go very, very bad for Paul. 
But Paul cares way too much for his soul, right? Enter Silla's soul. And anybody else that will listen. So he's willing to have these uncomfortable conversations and he would be alarmed. Felix would get alarmed, let him go, come back, summon him, and then we just do this thing over and over again. In other words, Felix got really used to hitting the snooze button. Uh, he would just hit snooze, snooze, snooze. And Matthew Henry's point is, we do not know, we do not find that the more convenient season ever came. Is there a more convenient time to wake up spiritually? For Felix, there's just this. And I should just say this, even though I'm not in this point of history, like I feel this for Felix. It's like, maybe he hit that alarm clock one too many times. Maybe hit that snooze button one too many times, right? He just kept thinking he could just hit it and just hit it and just hit it and thinking he's going to have another opportunity to summon Paul. After all, Paul was under his control, right? Ultimately, he's under God's control. And it's a fearful thing, or as, as uh, Matthew Henry put it, delays are dangerous. Oh, I think one of the central applications should be very, very apparent here. There is going to be a resurrection of the just and the unjust, which means at the end of the age, believers and unbelievers, righteous and wicked, everybody will be resurrected. And that resurrection is going to lead to a final judgment or trial where a case is going to be set forth. Judgment will come. And one thing that was really striking to me, this is kind of a fresh thought for me a lot of this, because I was thinking about, I've noticed that when you read about the resurrection in the New Testament, about the resurrection of the unjust, especially in proportion to the resurrection of the just. I mean, it's like so lopsided, isn't it? I mean, it talks a ton about the resurrection of the just, the resurrection of the believer. It speaks little, though it's there, about the resurrection of the unjust. And I say, why is that? I think it's because, well, resurrection is that note of hope that is just struck over and over and over again. But when it comes to the resurrection, who is resurrection hopeful for? For the believer. Is resurrection a hopeful thing for the unbeliever? Is the resurrection a hopeful thing for those who hit snooze over and over and over again? It's not. It's a fearful reality to fall into the hands of a God who is just and holy when we've hit snooze on him over and over again and have not waken up to the realities that he's put before them. And so, but resurrection is just, it's hopeful for the believer. We sing this. We love this. But if someone's not in Christ, they should dread it. Dread the being resurrected because resurrection leads to judgment. Hebrews 9:27 says, and just as this is appointed, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So judgment is waiting. And so the resurrection is hopeful for those who are just. But who will be just on that day? Who will be considered just? In that courtroom. See, Paul is reasoning with them about faith in Jesus Christ. Because he knows the only way for someone to be just and considered justice or declared righteous 
in God's sight is to put their faith in Jesus Christ. To repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. He knows that's their only hope. And that's the only way that resurrection is going to be a hopeful reality for them. And so he constantly puts it before them. You can be just, but you have to join us on the way. Like, you can be made just. You can be made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. That's this great doctrine of justification, right? When someone turns from their sins and puts their faith in Jesus Christ, God, in that moment, declares them righteous, acceptable in his sight. Their sins are no longer counted against them. Instead, Christ's righteousness and all of his accomplishments are accredited to their account. And they are, seemed, they are deemed fully acceptable in the beloved. Fully acceptable in Jesus Christ. That's what it takes to be just. To put faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is a very important application. And this is just the thing that's pressing home, I think, especially as we think about this conversation with Felix. If you're here today, and you're convicted, okay, in one sense, you're here and you're going, I feel really uncomfortable. I'm even nervous. And if it wasn't for those around me, I would have run out a while ago in the service. I'm glad that you're here, and that by God's grace, you've stayed in your seat. And I also want to say, that this is a word for you. Like this is such a gracious word. For God to say things that make us uncomfortable, to help us to sound the alarm before the ultimate judgment day comes, is one of the most merciful things that God can do. And so if he's sounding that alarm right now for you, I just want you to be wise about how you respond to your conviction that you're feeling. Okay? That's a God-given thing, to feel conviction about sin. I know we live in a really politically correct age, and we don't like to often be in a situation where anything could be discussed that would ever make us feel uncomfortable. We need safe spaces everywhere, right? To go out with bubble wrap, right? But we are in a fallen world. Our souls are in danger because of our sin, and I don't want you to be short-sighted in how you respond. Felix just kept pushing it down the road. Maybe you kept pushing it down the road. You just hit the snooze button, hit the snooze button, hit the snooze button. And my plea with you today is, wake up! Like, there's a judgment coming, and I cannot guarantee you that you'll have even another day to hit the snooze button. So wake up! If God has allowed you to even just see a window into the state of your soul, you just go like, man, I've... I keep claiming Christ, but if I'm honest, I don't know him because it hasn't changed my life. This is a wake-up call today, but it's not a wake-up call so you can say, that was nice to feel some conviction again, and then hit the snooze and doze off. I'm just saying, you can keep hitting the snooze button, but it's not going to go well for you. There's a certain point you get so used to it. You know what I'm talking about? You get so used to hitting that button where it's just going to become more and more natural to keep doing that. And I just want to say, if God would use this, if I could reach into your heart and break and shatter that spiritual snooze button, I would in an instant right now. But I cannot. You need to respond by the grace of God. And to quit hitting the snooze button, you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ. You need to surrender to him today would be the wisest response to what God is saying 
in this merciful word. And for those of us who are in Christ, isn't it amazing that by the grace of the God, by the grace of God, we don't have to fear this future trial. I'm so thankful every single day. I don't have to wake up with that hanging over my head. And I don't have to do a whole bunch of things in my life to numb me so I don't have to think about it. Right? The time of hitting the snooze is over. Right? I've already had to see and being in that comfortable, uncomfortable state, come to terms with my own sin before God, confess it to him, find forgiveness and grace at the cross of Jesus Christ, and find hope in an empty tomb. Like we have so much hope. Every single day, we don't have to live in dread. Right? For the unbeliever, there's plenty to be anxious about. For the believer, the thing, the main thing that should make us, could make us anxious, doesn't need to make us anxious. We don't have to fear. Why? Because it's a resurrection of the just. And we've made, been made just or justified, not by our own doing, but by the doing of Jesus Christ. Every day, we get to wake up with a freedom. We don't have to wake up with a thousand pounds on our chest if we consider these things rightly. It's a beautiful thing that because of Jesus, we don't have to dread, but actually look forward to that day. Because it's not going to be a harsh sentence that's laid down. It's going to be a time of reward, where God rewards what he worked in us through this life. It's just stunning. It's just stunning that this is for us every single day. But I want to ask you this question. Isn't it good to wake up that way? Isn't it good to not have to dread that? What would it look like to love your neighbor as yourself? Wouldn't, that, wouldn't you want that for unbelievers in your life, in your spheres of influence? Wouldn't you want them to not have to keep numbing themselves, right? But to be able to look fully in the face of Christ, as it were, and be free where they don't have to live in dread and they don't have to numb themselves and waste their lives. They can come out from their bondage and be free like you. You want that for your neighbor. You want that for that unbelieving spouse or child or coworker or friend. I want to ask you this. When's the last time you said something to somebody that was alarmed? Are you willing to have conversations with people that are uncomfortable and make them a little nervous? Not because you relish it. Not of any pride or condescension toward anybody, but because you love their souls. Our only comfort in life and death is that we belong to Jesus Christ. Right? Body and soul, we belong to him. Right? If they don't belong to him, they don't have comfort. I remember when Elder Bernie, this is before some of your time, but when Elder Bernie Otremba died, you could hardly imagine a more beautiful moment for a saint in preparing him for his ultimate homecoming in heaven. Like, surrounded with prayers and love and hymns, he was ready. He got to die in that comfort. We should hate the thought of other people dying without him. So I want that to burden us today as believers. I actually want you to come to terms with, like, are you willing to have uncomfortable conversations with people? God wants you to be willing to do that. Not because you love making people uncomfortable, but you'd much rather them be alarmed now than be alarmed later. 
that's what we have to reckon with. We must be willing to discuss some hard things. We must stay awake ourselves if we're going to be able to alert others. And that thought of other people being alarmed on that day because they haven't been woken up ahead of time is a scary thing. I had this weird experience yesterday, and I end with this. My son Silas, I was over at my brother's house, and they have a big cat. I think it's a good-sized cat, healthy cat. You're feeding them well, guys. Um, and uh, I'm in the other room, and little Titus, our little baby, one and a half years old, is in the other room. And I've heard Titus cry. I hear him cry all the time, right? And all of a sudden, I hear this cry from the other room. And it was not the normal, like, I'm hurt cry. It was like, I'm terrified kind of cry. And just, so I got ran in there. And he's just kind of like shaking. It was just sad. It kind of like broke my heart as a dad. It's kind of a weird feeling. Maybe you understand what I'm saying when I say like, I was like laughing, but I'm also just like hurting for him. But for him, he just experienced the equivalent of having like a panther walk into the into your bedroom. Because <laughs> this black cat huge in proportion to him. And he, I think it was innocently looking at a window. He turned around and saw this cat, and he was terrified by it, right? No one gave him the head. And to hear that cry was just like, whoa, buddy. I just wanted to comfort him, right? But the thought of people in our spheres of influence on the last day, just coming into that day, kind of like, and then being alarmed by having to see themselves in proportion to Jesus Christ is going to be, I don't want to hear that cry. Like it makes me want to weep the thought of hearing that cry. And I think for us, the thing that God is pressing upon us today is that we need to keep the main thing the main thing. Paul's heart just gravitated toward the resurrection of Jesus Christ and a future trial that's going to come. That's what shaped his thinking and shaped his actions even in a time of having to wait in an unjust situation in an upside-down world. And so for us, I just want to say, brothers and sisters, remember Jesus' words, stay awake. Stay awake. And from this text, sound the alarm. Lord, you know every heart in this room. It's a sobering thought that every single person here is going to be in that courtroom someday. I thank you for the grace to sound an alarm in this moment. I pray for those who are feeling really uncomfortable. Oh God, I pray that they would not hit the snooze button, but that they would surrender their lives to you, that they would wake up with their faith in Jesus Christ, that they would follow him with others that can help them mutually stay awake in this journey. Lord, I pray that you would break some spiritual snooze buttons today. God, you would even put a burden on people's hearts to not leave today unless they've talked to another Christian here that can help guide them. 
breaking that alarm system into putting their faith in Christ. We plead with you for that, Lord. So we long for that. Because we want them to have the same comfort. Live in the same comfort and die in the same comfort that we do and that we will. Have mercy, O oh God. Move by the power of your Holy Spirit to awaken the dead. Before that last day. Lord, I don't want to hear, we don't want to hear that cry on the last day. Because they weren't ready. We certainly don't want to hear it because we failed to sound the alarm. Lord, I pray for every brothers and sister in here. Lord, you know our hearts. You know how we get timid, how we get distracted, how we make lesser things the main thing and fail to make the main thing the main thing. God, forgive us for ways we've allowed ourselves to slumber, and that's why we're not in a place where we can sound the alarm. I pray that you'd have mercy on us, Lord. Forgive us, cleanse us, and renew this desire in us to awaken the dead, to be used of you to sound this alarm that many might wake up and follow you on the way with us. Lord, I just thank you so much that at the end of the day today, we can sound the alarm, and we want to do that faithfully until our dying breath. But thank you that today, we can live before you with a clear conscience, before you and before man. We don't have anything to fear, to be anxious about. We can trust you, even in all circumstances. Lord, I pray that we would recognize the comfort that we have and that we would rejoice in it, even as we sing to you now. In Jesus' name.